Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brendan Buddha. We are back with our coverage of Peace Chapter 5. This is our third recap. In this episode, we'll be covering pages 302 to 311 in the Orb 2012 edition. Before we get into it today, we want to let you know about a wolf-related stretch goal that we are working toward on Patreon. It is a double feature, by which I mean that when we hit that goal, Brandon and I will do a bonus series on the classic wilderness horror novella, The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. Uh, This is a great story that I think will have most of us thinking that we are back on St. Anne. But the double part of this is that, and more wolfish, I should say, we will do a bonus episode on Wolf's favorite novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. Both of these stories were chosen by supporters. I am really excited, really eager to do them, so I hope that we get there soon. Yeah, me too. I I really hope we can uh, do The Island of Dr. Moreau. It's a novel that I, I've always been curious about. I tried to read it when I was a boy after the uh, Val Kilmer, Marlon Brando, David Thewlis movie came out, uh, which is notoriously bad. And I think I was just a touch too young to really get into it, or I couldn't focus on it, or the writing wasn't what I expected. And now knowing that it's Wolf's favorite book, and I'm a little bit more mature as a reader, just slightly, uh, I really hope we can get <laughs> (laughs) this soon so you and I can talk about it and track uh, Wolf's love for it, maybe through the way it's influenced some of his other stories. So uh, I really hope we can reach that goal. We've been really knocking out goals recently and and what a pleasure that has been for us to to get that kind of support from our uh, listeners. Yeah. And we've gotten to do some really, really amazing episodes uh, because of it. I mean, just whole series on At the Mountains of Madness by H.B. Lovecraft, uh, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, Star Trek movie. G.K. Chesterton. I mean, it's just been phenomenal. The extra stuff that we're getting to do. And uh, yeah, I guess if we hit this goal, I mean, you know, when we do hit these goals, we usually throw in some bonus episodes that, you know, aren't really part of the package. And uh, maybe a Val Kilmer, Marlon Brando film adaptation is uh, just what we need. <laughs> perhaps perhaps it is. I don't know. We, we'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But let's, uh, let's turn our attention to peace now. In this section, we're going to get some I don't know, people from the factory talking to the reporter about just what's been going on in Cashinsville, what we've been focused on, we're. Right. This episode, we're still with the reporter, Fred Thurlow, who is getting this tour of the plant from Weir and, and also from the PR executive, Dan French. We are going to finish that up this episode and then still have one episode left before we are done with all the recaps for peace. Now, this chunk of text is really just going to be two interviews that are punctuated by a bit more of the tour. The two interviews in particular are something of a a microcosm of the social and economic history of Cashinsville and the surrounding area, but therefore they also are something of a stand-in for the social and economic history of America, at least as Wolf sees it. And so that is super fascinating. But let's start with this first interview. The interviewee is a woman who works in the office of the cold house. Her job is keeping track of what comes in and what goes out, and she also answers the phone a bit. Even before we learn her story, though, I want to admire Wolf's ability to insert some political commentary here just by having her say something about free speech. And the reporter explained that all free speech means is that the government can't arrest you for saying things unless what you're saying is plans to overthrow the government. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it is 
some political commentary, but maybe it's also salient to the plot as well. Because this woman knows that Dan and Mr. Weir are close by enough to overhear her conversation, and they know that she's talking to a reporter who may print what she has to say if he doesn't use his full word count to tell the ghost story of the orange juice plant. So yeah, she's she's looking for assurances from the reporter. And this is a great way to establish this character and also uh, the ensuing conversation in just a few sentences. But yes, it, it is also, as we've been saying, political commentary. I think Wolf is looking at how people commonly think of free speech or use phrases like it's a free country, you know, stuff like that. But it's hardly ever true in the way that they mean it, which is like, I can do whatever I want and say whatever I want. And Wolf is highlighting here that uh, with great rights come great responsibilities. <laughs> but, but he's also pointing to the fact that at the end of the day, uh, if it's the government that issues rights, then the government can take them away. So on a deeper level, what Wolf is meaning here maybe is that America has ceased to believe that our rights are in inalienable or endowed by a creator. And so that idealized America or the Americans that believe in that past is truly an America of the past. But regardless of all of this, uh, this woman is either not having her best day at work or she's a little dissatisfied with the way her life has turned out, as we'll see. Yeah, but I do think that we are going to come back to just this this very question in the ways that you have pointed out here, and that just this, this phrase, just this little bit of the conversation about our idea of what it means to be American or to be America versus the reality is central to this story. So it seems like a a bit of throwaway humor here, but I I, I contest that it is it is not. But at any rate, yeah, let's go get this woman's story. And by the way, I should say that we're we're never actually going to get her name. Okay, so she did not grow up in Cashinsville. She grew up in an adjacent region centered around a town called Hylesport. That's a made-up name, of course, right? But it's got port in the name, so that tells us something, at least. But when she was 12, her family moved from Hylesport to Cashinsville, and that was 15 years ago. She started working at the plant a year after high school and has been doing that ever since. She doesn't do the math, but I like to do that, so I have calculated that this means that she has been working here for eight years. And she likes it fine. I mean, it's dull work, right? But all work is dull after a while. But she really marvels at the amount that they produce and ship out of here. And this is, I think, really the heart of the interview. She just can't even imagine that there are enough people in the world to consume as much as they make. Now, she thinks about this in terms of what a housewife would buy for a family of four or five. And even if every housewife in the world does that, it can't possibly account for everything that they produce. The other part of the interview is about her family. She doesn't have any children, and she isn't going to now because she's too old for it. Because, you know, she's 27. And uh, we've talked about this with Lois last <laughs> chapter, but this was a moment that made me laugh out loud because I actually would struggle to think of anyone among my friends who had children that young. And so, right, this is just a bit of social and cultural history right here, how 50 years ago was very different from today. But still, the reporter asks her if she thinks that Cashinsville would be a nice place for kids to grow up. She doesn't really think so. The same goes for Hylesport, where she herself grew up. The newish refinery there has made it a bad place, though she doesn't explain how it has done that or really what she means by the phrase bad place. She also thinks about how her own mother grew up on a farm. 
And they didn't have much money, but they weren't poor because they didn't actually need much money. They had a farm that produced food, and you also could use food to pay for most things. Uh, Even the doctor took payment in the form of chickens. On Thanksgiving, her father would shoot a deer. But now this woman, uh, the granddaughter of these farmers, just takes a turkey out of her freezer and that's it. And this story, this seems like something of a lamentation. It's absolutely a lamentation, or the woman really treats it as an opportunity to give a lamentation. You know, she sees now that she lives in a kind of world where both she and her husband have to work to afford their life. She's surrounded by excess and and doesn't really know who is buying all this stuff. You know, she's talking about orange juice, but it could really mean any type of consumer product. You know, she buys it, but she only does that to support the company. And so what we see here is that she is spending her reduced paycheck to buy stuff that she kind of doesn't like, and it's something her husband doesn't even think about, and neither of them need it. And both of them feel like they can't have kids, and they don't go to their families for Thanksgiving. She's unhappy about it. But she clearly imagines what it would be like to have children, raising them, sending them out into the world and so forth, even though she thinks that maybe no place is a good place to raise children. But the reporter asks specifically if she had a daughter, what that would be like. And here's where we start picking up uh, on some what I think eerie resonances between this part of the interview and what we've learned about Weir's life or some of the stories that he's gotten. You know, this question about the daughter uh, really got me thinking about the Banshee story, you know, uh, That's a thing where the couple has a daughter, and so they avoid birthing the Antichrist. And when the reporter asks specifically what it would mean for this woman to have a daughter, and we'll see that daughters come up a number of times in this chapter, that there's something going on here. Then the woman tells us her husband's name is Joe. That's Weir's uncle's name, the one who died when he was four years old. Then there's all the stuff about hunting deer and farming. And I'm just not sure what I'm supposed to do with this sort of thing, even after reading this novel, you know, a couple times through up to, to get to this point, but here it is, you know, and why are we getting this story then with 15 pages to go in the book? This is something we're really going to have to think about. There are a lot of resonances with images that we've already had. To be fair, right? these are images that are reality effects for what this community is like. This is a community where people hunt deer, though they may also be hunting ghosts. We will have to return to that, <laughs> that question. But uh, hunting deer and you know the, the farm stuff does feel a lot like Chapter 2, where we spend quite a bit of time at the Lorne Farm. But yeah, this was a farming community, so that tracks. And, you know... There really are only a handful of names. You and I have both given our children rather unusual names because we're living in a culture where we value that. But 50 years ago and and more, most of the 20th century was a time when Americans valued giving their kids names that didn't seem out of the ordinary. So you really only had a handful to you know, pick from. And, you know, Dan is one of them. Joe's another. James, right? I mean, like you just, you had like six names for, you know, for kids to to choose from. So uh, coincidence, but I think it's a likely one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously Joe is an extremely common name, but I just, 
really wanted to emphasize just how this interview was just full of these. And I don't really know what else to call them, but resonances that make us think about other stuff we've encountered in the book. And I think we're supposed to. I mean, I think that is what this is is for. This is, you know, this chapter is to some extent tying up loose ends. We will take that up in the, the discussion <laughs> episode, but bringing all these images back together in this way and making them part of the story of People we haven't actually even met before in such a way that then they feel like they are the story of this whole community. And the story of this whole community is maybe the whole story of America. I think that's that's what Wolf is trying to do here. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with you, Glenn. And uh, I hope we can make sense of it because I still struggle to. <laughs> <laughs> well, we get a break from interviewing now while the reporter gets the last of the tour of the plant. There's quite a bit here about the machines that do a lot of the work, uh, like filling bottles, sealing bottles, that sort of thing. Obviously, Wolf the Engineer is super interested in that. I, I'm, I'm just going to let that stand as it is, and I'm going to focus on the human element here. And there are just two things, really. One, we learned that most of the people working at the machines are Latin Americans, uh, mostly either Mexican Americans or they're Puerto Ricans. And this is a change from when the plan opened. It's, it's something new in the last 15 years or so. These workers have been recruited for these jobs because the company can't get local people to work them anymore. But to be clear, these jobs were always high turnover. Uh, they used to be filled by women who didn't have children yet, who would then leave the job when they wanted to start a family. So they would work here for a few years at most. So here we have another bit of social and economic history and the, the story of this plant. The other human element is that over the decades, the company has changed the ratio at which it makes the frozen version of this orange potato drink versus the powdered version of this orange potato drink. The powder was the original product, but when the frozen was introduced, people liked that better and it quickly became 70% of what they were making here. But lately, people have buying the powder a lot, and so now it is a 60-40 split. But Weir explains that they are about to introduce a new version, a regular, non-frozen liquid orange juice, or to be clear, orange-flavored potato juice. And this is going to be marketed directly at kids by putting it in plastic bottles that look like anthropomorphic smiling fruits, uh, and then also for these bottles to have a shape that can be easily manipulated by kids so that they'll be able to pour their own juice into a cup. And all of this, too, is a micro-history of American consumerism, also the history of marketing that really was giving me flashbacks to my own childhood. Oh, yeah. I, I, I can't remember precisely if these products were around when I was a kid or not, but I have a distinct memory of holding this like plastic orange in my hand and its texture and all this stuff. And when I was thinking about it, like when would I have had this? I wondered if it hadn't been, you know, the lime or lemon juice that comes in plastic limes or lemons. And Wolf's description here just completely rewrote my memory. But I, I would say that reading this description here was maybe the most uncanny moment I experienced in reading a novel full of uncanny moments. Yeah, because we have run up here. I mean, it's the early 70s when Wolf is writing this, and this feels extremely contemporary to the writing of it. And so all of the things that I took for granted as simply a fact of material existence in the, the 80s and also even the early 90s are really in the making here in the 70s. I can't pinpoint exactly what thing from my childhood I'm remembering either, which is, I guess that's great. But I do 
remember becoming aware at some point, but I think this was when I was an adolescent, of Kool-Aid, which is another one of these, you know, powder drinks that you're supposed to mix with something in order to, you know, turn water into some kind of flavor. It's just, you know, sugar water. <laughs> That's what Kool-Aid is. But I re- I have a memory of Kool-Aid moving to actually just selling juice, but it, it came in the shape of the Kool-Aid man. And it was meant to appeal to kids. But I, I remember as a, an adolescent thinking that it just looked terrifying. But I don't know. It sold well. I guess. Yeah. And then they had those wax twist off tops that were like disgusting. Uh, And then they moved those to plastic as well. Yeah, that was that was weird. The juice culture was a big deal, I guess, when we were kids. It's it's not so much anymore. I don't think they have so many commercials advertised at kids anymore because kids stream stuff. So I have no idea what kind of products kids are into. It's weird. Yes, but we can flash forward to like 30 years from now when our kids are uh, well continuing this podcast because it's going to take that long. And uh, they'll be talking about all the terrible stuff we bought them. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, well, you know, there's other stuff I want to point out here. You mentioned in your recap of the section, I think almost everything I wanted to point out. Uh, but what I want to do here is highlight the way that Weir thinks of the Latin Americans as having dark Indian eyes. There's a fair bit of, of nationalism in this chapter, I think. And this is the first sense of it that we get. Um, there's something here, right? There's something here with the Latin Americans having dark Indian eyes, some closure maybe regarding the Indian topic of the novel, something about how Weir idolizes or thinks a lot about the missing Indians, but still thinks of Indians in like a USA first nationalistic sense. I don't know. It's definitely something we have to untangle when we get to our final wrap up episodes and are really dissecting, you know, one element of as a time. How do Indians show up in this novel? This is kind of the last time they show up, and it's a weird moment when when you're thinking about how he thinks of Mexican-Americans and Latin-Americans as kind of continuing on uh, this Native American heritage or Amerindian heritage, and he doesn't – he thinks of them as being less than because they're not the USA Indians that he's familiar with. A, a big part of this novel, as we've talked about before, has actually been a history of immigration and how uh, America, how the United States is really a, a, the story of a sequence of waves of immigrants. And we've gotten that in Cashinsville, Cashinsville serving as a kind of microcosm for that story. And Weir seems to be thinking about different types of immigrants or different groups of immigrants, I should say, in, in different chapters of this book. And this is the beat of that that we get here in this chapter. So yeah, when we get to the wrap-up episodes, we'll we'll put that all together. And really, I mean, that will just be one part of putting together Weir's vision of America and understanding of American history. I mean, that might even take up one entire wrap-up episode. It's entirely possible because it's so many passages in this novel that we're that we're going to have to track. There's one other thing I want to point out here in this section, and that is the way a metaphor is used in the manufacturing plant that really stood out to me. Uh, it's a metaphor that describes what will happen if the machines and packaging products fail to do their job properly, especially when we put it in context with what we're about to see uh, what the, with what the next man interviewed talks about. But here's what Weir says. He says this, it's hard to visualize, but if one drop were spilled from each can as it went through the seamer, you'd have enough juice to make a nice little creek running out of the machine. 
So in this image here, I see a reversal of what has become a sort of typical image in the novel of nature overtaking and overcoming man's work. Here, instead, we have a man creating some kind of artificial version of nature through their own mechanical failures or or, or processing. Uh, And that's something that we also saw or reminded me of the, the image of Uh, the description of the Boy Scout knife and all that section about the fantasy races and a plastic wilderness. Uh, I guess, though, that what really jumped out to me here at the end of the day is the word creek, as creeks have shown up a lot in this text so far. The drying of creeks, the creeks that ran off the Kanakesi River that we were played in as a child or an adolescent with Margaret Lorne, um, the Sugar Creek that dried up. So in this way, reading, coming across this passage here about a manufactured creek of fake orange juice felt like a violation of both the principles behind you know how the factory makes its money and how it needs to be efficient but also being a violation of nature itself yeah let's go get a little bit about creeks we are nearing the end of the tour now but we are going to get one more interview and this one is impromptu because there just suddenly is a farmer standing next to the, the three men here, and this farmer wants to talk. He has just delivered a bunch of potatoes to the plant, and he explains that while he's not an employee of the company, he nonetheless works for them, but he also gets none of the benefits that employees do. And he goes on to paint a pretty bleak picture of the monoculture economy of the region that has developed ever since Julia Smart opened for business. It used to be the case that people had farms that supported them and their family and then also allowed for some profit from selling the the excess crops and so on, other products. But when the plant opened, suddenly there was a nearby market for really just all the potatoes people could grow. And that meant that everyone turned to only farming potatoes and, and doing it for cash and then just went on to become consumers of everything that they needed rather than self-sufficient producers And that change, that ruined farming. To illustrate his point, he says that when he was growing up 50 years ago or so, farmers had it made around here. People with specialist jobs like doctors and bankers would actually quit that work and take up farming if they were able to marry a widow with a farm because farming was more lucrative and it was more stable. And he even says that when his dad died, his grief was actually competing with his excitement at inheriting the farm. But now, none of his children even want the farm. And he thinks that this is, at least in part, just because farming has gotten boring, because you only grow the one thing. But he also points out that a lot of the land has been ruined by the development of industry in the area. Plants like this one suck up all the groundwater, and that takes away a lot of the creeks that made farming possible. Or the mining operations and the refineries in the region just pollute the ground and poison the water that does remain. But in either case, there just are fewer farms. And what farms there are are larger. And so there are nowhere near as many farmers as there used to be. And therefore, there's no longer any community around the business of farming or the profession of farming. And so I think this farmer's story dovetails with the young woman's picture of what life was like for her grandparents. And again, there's, I think, a huge amount of lamentation here. And this lamentation, this is where we're going to end, and then we'll finish the chapter next episode. I think that what these two interviews have in common is the sentiment that 
the industrialization of whole areas has essentially ruined the possibility of actually living freely if freedom means something like self-determination and self-sufficiency in meeting your own needs. There's a sense that industrialization has ruined the land and the landscape. It's a race to certain kind of knowledge and has generally diminished well-being. So yeah, a lamentation um, and, and, and also a Jeremiah in the sense that the past was some kind of golden age. I wonder if this farmer isn't the Abel Green we've read so little about, but was in the waiting room in the start of the novel. You know, I don't know what degree that really matters in thinking about the content of the speech, but the reason why I wonder if this is Abel Green is because if it is someone in the Green family, if not Abel, we learn in that first chapter that Weir's family owns or owned the Green farm and that the Greens have always then been laboring on someone else's behalf in order to increase someone else's financial well-being and capital. And so that would make sense kind of in uh, trying to find out just who Abel Green is and having him show up here at the, the very end of the novel because we've seen nothing from him. In fact, we've seen very few male farmers in this book at all. They've sort of been hidden from us, including Carl Lorne. Right. I mean, I think this is actually the first farmer we've really had on stage, even though the early parts of this book present Cashinsville as largely, you know, the center of an agricultural region and the farmers and the farming community is a, a big part of the the life of the the town, the reason for the community. It certainly is a part of at least of the Weir's family wealth. But the story, of course, has centered around the elite society of the town. It's centered on the people who are doctors and and bankers uh, and and professors at the nearby university and so on those are the types of people we've we've met even as this novel has clearly been throughout a kind of lamentation for the the loss of uh, american agriculture it's been a kind of a fantasy yearning for i don't know the shire i guess i thought a lot about that because this speech uh from this farmer reminds me uh, maybe not the speech, but the farmer himself reminds me a lot of Abraham Beale from For Lesson. It's less like what they're talking about specifically, but the characterizations, I think, are really similar, and I really love it. And yeah, I, I agree, Glenn, then. Wolf, in this period of his writing, really idealizes a pre-industrial America. Um, and I think in this context, you know, the specific context of this novel, he's right to. But I, I think he's willing to examine the complications of it because Wolf or Weir, perhaps, is also being critical of our categorization of great men here, of American industrialists as great great men, because Smart is one who, who set all of this in motion and Weir has simply inherited it. So not only has Smart essentially destroyed the farmland of the valley and, and the natural resources, the creeks and the rivers, um, but now they're not even supporting the economy of the valley in potato farming because we learn that these guys are importing a different sort of potato from Maine, essentially collapsing a portion of the valley's economy for the sake of a novelty product that no one actually needs, wants, or likes. I mean, a lot of people want it, which means their marketing is great. So yeah, there is a lot going on here. But th this speech by this farmer in this novel really hits like a hammer, even though it's able to still, I think, be dense and, and subtle 
in the way that it deals with the rest of what we've seen in the novel and kind of ties up some of these questions about what is greatness? Is smart a great man? Is weird a great man for inheriting? You know, is it greatness to destroy all this stuff for a novelty product because somebody's made a lot of money off of it? How are we even thinking about goodness in America? And how, if this farmer is Abel Green, how can we even say that Abel Green's perspective is right? Because he's always been a laborer, even if he's been able to be happy. And so this is a a, a speech that when especially combined with the, the circus element of the novel that draws us back into the critique of industrialism in chapter three, really gets us to ask, is happiness in our career, even enough to say something is good. Uh, anyway, this novel is really complex if we approach it from this direction, which is something we're not going to do in this moment. No, but we, we're rapidly approaching the moment when we will do that. But yeah, I think there is a part of this novel that that feels like a list of, of, of professions that Gene Wolfe wished he was doing instead of working at Procter & Gamble right. when he was writing this book. Yeah, that list is actually two professions. It's dog boy and farmer. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're really glad that Gene Wolfe became a writer instead, even though he was dealing with his own difficulties working for Procter & Gamble. And I don't know, maybe on that note, we should call it a day. So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. If you would like to support the network and help us reach our goal of covering the Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells, as well as The Willows by Algernon Blackwood, then I hope you'll join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. Next time, we are going to be finishing this book, uh, the recaps at least. Uh, we will still have at least three big episodes to go after that, but we will at least be done with the recaps. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>